Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. In June this year, a new piece of equipment was anchored 37 kilometres off the coast of Pātia in the South Taranaki Bight. It's going to be there for a year, I think. Called the Floating Light Detecting and Ranging Device, or FLIDAR, will measure wind speeds uh, at heights of up to 300 metres, as well as waves and currents, to provide data that's critical for assessing the feasibility of a proposed offshore wind farm. How exciting. The Taranaki Offshore Partnership, or TOP, if it's successful, will be the largest wind farm in New Zealand and the only uh, offshore wind farm producing one gigawatt or somewhere between 10 and 11% of our country's needs. And that's roughly the same as one of our large hydroelectric schemes. as a JV between New Zealand Superfund and Denmark's Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, and the project leader here is Giacomo Kalafi. Did I pronounce that right? Almost, almost. Giacomo Caleffi, but, okay. but very good. Just do it one more time. It sounds so great. Giacomo Caleffi. It sounds delicious, actually, like it could be edible. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you very Giacomo. much. Thanks for having me. Uh, so the feasibility study is still underway. What are you studying? Yeah, yeah, good question. So um, first of all, this is, uh, as you mentioned, the first offshore wind farm in the country. So um, we, with the CIP, were quite used to um, entering new markets with this uh, new technology, which is not new for European standards, but but it is for many other markets. Um, so there are some aspects of it which are, um, let's say, known. For example, how to install these turbines, all the technical aspects. Um, but with every new market, there are a lot of questions about does this technology fit in, in the market? And that's, uh, let's say, in, a, in summary, is what this feasibility is all about. We mm-hmm. have to answer a lot of questions around, again, first of all, from a technical point of view, is it is it feasible to install the turbines to the seabed of the coast of Taranaki? But then there are a lot of other aspects, like, for example, uh, market impact or just the sheer volume of uh, generation that we're discussing. Um, how does that fit into the, the, the picture of uh, decarbonization for New Zealand? And then to even, uh, you know, more, uh, I guess, a holistic view, there's a whole social aspect that these are, that this is big infrastructure. Again, it's a new technology for a lot of people. Many people don't know how it works. There is a lot that needs to be done there to just uh, socialize what we're talking about and get everybody on board and, and understand if it's the right technology right now for the country, which we think it is. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, has the feasibility study made you doubt that this is a good idea? Uh, no, no, not really. So um, we've, we've from the, the fundamentals were there from the very beginning. And, you know, all these um, enterprises start with, uh, let's say, two things. One is, uh, is there a spot in the country which is windy enough? And South Taranaki is incredibly windy. And in general, New Zealand has very, very good wind resource. And the second step, the second basic parameter, let's say, is this uh, water depth. So are there water depths that are shallow enough to actually allow installation of the turbines connected to the seabed. And the reason for that is uh, is just that that is the most, uh, let's say, common and understood technology. Mm. So it's it's quite easy for us to, we know that we can install them in this way. The wind is great. So those are the first two parameters that, again, make us think 
there's a really good opportunity. And that there. was reasonably easy to establish. The, you know, is it windy? Yes. Uh, the roaring forties. Thank Indeed. you. Um, yeah. And and the depth. What about the sort of substrate? You know, the the ground. Is it is it solid enough for what you need? Yeah, we believe so. So we had initial studies, what we call desktop studies, as in studies that basically use information that is already available that was collected, say for example for oil and gas purposes for yeah. South Taranaki. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we look at those, and yeah, the first indications are that the, the type of type of uh, seabed of Taranaki is pretty much sandy uh, sandy soils, and those are the perfect type of soils to install this kind of technology. Oh, so that's good news. Yeah. How many do you think, if you were successful, how mm-hmm. many wind turbines do you need for a gigawatt? Yeah, for a gigawatt, we're talking around 70 turbines. So that would be with uh, machines that um, generate 15 megawatts each. That's sort of the state-of-the-art turbine that is available right. on the market yeah. now. Well, it's actually in prototype stage, but uh, the technology moves so fast that we're quite confident that by the time we get to potentially build, that that would be a machine that we could use. Who is we? Um, we know that your, your two big partners are um, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, that's yep. CIP, and yep. the Super Fund, which obviously we know is our sovereign wealth fund. But uh, I presume at some point a generator or, an, or a company is going to be running this, right? Um the company is top, so that that is the idea. Uh-huh. Um, at the moment, it's a bit tricky with these mega projects. The idea is, at the moment, uh, top is a so-called development company. So the idea is uh, that the partnership is meant to uh, investigate the feasibility of, of projects. And South Taranaki is one of those projects. We're also looking at the, off the coast of Waikato, for example. There's mm-hmm. another very good resource there. So normally what happens is that once once the project is, let's say, identified, once we've we've decided, okay, South Taranaki, we, we, we now have all the fundamentals needed to actually establish it as a project, uh, that's when a new company is, is created, and this is the normal way of doing things. It's called, uh-huh. in technical terms, a special purpose vehicle. Yeah. Uh, so it just becomes another company with its own name, and, and the project and the company become the same thing. So this is this is normally the way it works with uh, really large projects. And so in the current uh, system that we have, we have these gen tailors who yep. are both owners of the infrastructure the, um, and the sellers of, you know, have a retail component. Is that what you imagine top um, becoming? At this point, it would probably be top would probably be a generator. That's the part we are focusing on. Uh, the retailing part uh, that will have to be seen. If we, you know, we would we could be selling the electricity to uh, to retailers who then sell it to uh, customers, or we could be uh, selling directly to industrial users, for example. So let's say that is more of the the market structure. But, uh, that's right. something that we would be looking at further down the track. Probably. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's look at these um, questions that you've been studying now mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> because I, I imagine that I'm just running through some of the things that I could Im- have read about. For instance, um, w- once you've generated this, it's got to land, right? So it's, And it's got to land on a big fat cable, I Correct. presume. What's the kind of grid infrastructure that you need onshore. Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll just step back a little bit for, for maybe any listeners who might not know how an offshore wind farm works, but uh, so we, we have all these turbines at sea. They are connected in uh, strings, so uh, there's a so-called array cable, which is a, let's say, smaller uh, voltage cable that runs in between a turbine and the next. Uh-huh. Uh, it will connect six or seven turbines in a, in a string, and that string will then connect to an offshore substation. This is a bit like a, it looks a bit like an 
oil and gas platform. It sits in the middle of the of the park, and it, and that's where all the electricity from the turbines converges. Let's put it that way. From there, we then have one or two large, as you say, export cables that run all the way to shore, and they carry the electricity to shore. Yeah. Once we uh, make, uh, once we land on the, on the beach somewhere, um, then we have uh, we would have another substation there, and that the, uh, at that point we would connect with the, uh, the national grid, and uh, from there that's where Transpower as the, the owner and operator of the national grid would would they say let's say take on <laughs> take over the electricity yeah. that we generated. Yeah, yeah. Does Taranaki have that infrastructure, or will we have to build new uh, new lines? It's a good question. At the moment, there are some lines running along the south coast, so Taranaki has. Because obviously there are some some you know fairly sizable power plants in Taranaki, like the Taranaki uh, gas power plant. Mm. So uh, it is well served. Is it served well enough to uh, enable the landing of that amount of electricity? Those are the types of things that uh-huh. we are looking at with Transpower. Yeah. Um, you know, normally what we see because offshore wind always talks about large generation. It's always large projects. It's quite rare that we get to a new market and the transmission lines are perfectly ready to receive uh-huh. this amount of generation. There is always an amount of uh, upgrades required. So those are the types of discussions that we need to have with Transpower in the coming years. And that, again, forms part of the feasibility. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I imagine that these things uh, require maintenance. They're not just mm-hmm. set and forget. So then you need uh, kind of expertise. You need the, the, the kind of ongoing port maintenance yep. and vessels and uh, equipment and crew. What does... Does that all need to be in kind of created from scratch, and where would be the logical place to to put that? Yeah, partly. First of all, they do require a lot of operations and maintenance. Well, sorry, a lot of maintenance. But the reality is that because it's really difficult to do maintenance offshore, difficult and expensive, there is a lot of work that goes into designing these things so that they run as smoothly as possible. And uh, but having said that, you know, they're still machines. They still need they still need uh, visiting. Normally, we would want to visit each turbine, say at least once a year Mm. for for some sort of minor maintenance. And then every now and then, you might have larger operations. I mean, the forces on those things must be astronomical. Indeed, yes. Um, um, I started uh, as a structural engineer in offshore wind, and so my, my first job was effectively calculating forces on the foundations of these structures, and they are astronomical, because <laughs> if you think that it's basically a long stick that is uh, receiving the full force of the wind at the top, yeah. when the rotor is spinning at its maximum efficiency, it almost acts like a solid disk. You can imagine that it's almost a solid disk stopping the wind, and you have it 150 meters above water level. So the force at the connection of the seabed is is pretty impressive. It's mind blowing. What's the material that they're made out of? Steel. The, yeah, steel forms. I, I think it's around ninety percent of the whole of the whole structure. Mm. So um, yeah, very well understood material. And and when I was an engineer, I used to think that the technical part was the difficult part. Now I realize that all the commercials are a lot more complicated. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, so it seems. <laughs> Um, but in terms of maintenance, you're, you're very right in saying that um, there needs to be sort of local um, local support, local vessels. So, uh, and that is uh, especially for the 30 years of operation of, of a wind farm. That is where we always see a lot of benefits in terms of jobs, for example, for for a region coming in, because mm. some of the construction of these structures does require expertise coming from overseas. There's maybe only a handful of contractors around the world who can do some of these operations. Yeah. But then once it's established. A lot of those jobs that, uh, for example, turbine maintenance and and so on, they are quite easily uh, transported across from, for example, oil and gas or energy jobs, Hmm. very similar types of of jobs. Uh, And you've identified Partia, 
I think, as a, as a potential port uh, for servicing. Is that because it's closer than uh, Port Taranaki? Correct. Uh, from that point of view, once we are in the operations phase, what you really want is a harbour that uh, is as close as possible to, to the wind farm. And so, Patia, we're looking, uh, you know, the ideal location would be roughly 25 kilometers off the coast, uh, roughly uh, off Patia. Yeah. And, and so, Patia would be in the perfect position to service. And that means that you would be able to have smallish vessels, say 12 people each, um, 12 people, 12 workers per vessel. This vessel would go out to the wind farm in the morning. I think it would be roughly a one and a half hour sail time get there, do the day of work, and be able to come back in, in the evening. So that is absolutely the, the ideal setup. And that, again, would mean that uh, you then end up having uh, significant numbers of workers yeah. in, in the location. Yeah, uh, it sounds location. like a much more sustainable alternative than um, deep-sea fishing or, or going off to an oil rig for, for, for two weeks. We think so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll come back to the social aspect in a minute, but uh, you've got to satisfy the boy in me that really wants to know about how you build these things sure. uh, because they're huge. Mm-hmm. You're in hostile conditions. You're in the in pretty deep uh, water at that point, I imagine, 25 k's off the coast, um, and it's hell of a windy. Yep. And presumably you're not just doing this in summertime. So uh, t- tell us through the process, talk us through the process of building one. Yeah, yeah. So we're lucky that the industry started in the North Sea in uh, in Europe, so pretty hostile environment there as well. And yeah. obviously, if we are installing wind turbine, it's because it's windy, and that normally means it's also big waves. So um, these structures from the beginning had to be uh, you know, yeah. withstand the, the those types of conditions. Um, in terms of construction, we build offshore also because we can build a lot bigger than onshore. So the turbines offshore are much larger. And the reason for that is that uh, components normally get built in factories that are really close to the to a quayside in a port. It could be in, in Europe or in uh, Southeast Asia. Yeah. They get loaded directly onto vessels and then the vessels come to um, go directly to the site for installation. And How these long vessels, are the blades? The blades for a 15 megawatt turbine are uh, over 110 meters long. Wow. That is uh, significant. That's and a big boat that has to be able to carry that load. Indeed, yeah. So these are vessels that are highly specialized for uh, installing the foundations and uh, and the turbines. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they are normally so-called jack-up vessels. So they have, let's say, legs that the oh, vessel yeah. can lower onto the seabed. And then once they are in place, the vessel lifts itself out of the water and it becomes like a stable platform for, for construction. So uh, there's not many of those vessels around, as you can imagine. They yeah. are pretty bespoke. And that's one of the aspects where um, we call on the sort of uh, the supply chain, the global supply chain. We need to get these vessels from from overseas. They often have, they are booked for years in advance yeah. because there's not many. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, they can do the job very efficiently. So, And convincing one of those vessels to come down to our part of the world must be, that adds another level of, Stress or, or pressure on the on the proposal, right? Because we're a long way from anywhere. Absolutely, and and that is where uh, the expertise and, and the let's say global positioning of a company like Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners uh-huh. comes to play. Because we are not just looking at one gigawatt in South Taranaki. We have a pipeline of projects in Australia. We have projects all over the world, uh, and that 
I guess, puts us in a position of being a slightly more serious uh, and credible player than, than uh, others in the industry. Uh, and that just, we, we see that that allows us to tap into this sort of global supply chain uh, in, in a slightly more uh, efficient way. We have ordered offshore wind turbines by from suppliers, you know, many times. So they kind of know, and again, there's only a, a handful of suppliers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They know who we are and it just makes things a little bit easier. I'm not saying it will be easy, but... Yes, uh, certainly. So uh, just to wrap up on that, um, that does mean, though, that we will have to show up on the on the international market as Australia plus New Zealand. Right. Yeah. Uh, a sort of um, offshore wind, I guess, hub rather than just one country or the other. Yeah, well, there was makes so much sense. We, we couldn't even get Taylor Swift down here <laughs> uh, by ourselves. So um, clearly not 70 wind turbines. Um, what happens next? You get these massive blades delivered. I presume that the towers come in sections. Correct. And um, then someone swims down and puts some <laughs> concrete on the floor. Uh, it's it's all steel. There's no concrete. So uh, the foundation, and that is what we're considering for South Taranaki again because of the water depths, uh, it's a so-called monopile. It's basically a big steel cylinder, very long, again, 110 meters long, very heavy, can be 2,500 tons easily. And this gets uh, lowered onto the seabed and then uh, driven into the seabed, which is similar to sort of hammering a oh, nail. Oh, okay. Hammering a nail into the seabed. And no foundations. That is the foundation. That is basically the stick in the in the mud. Uh-huh. And on top of that, we can then install the tower and, and the turbine. That, again, is the simplest, from an engineering perspective, the simplest way of connecting to, to the seabed. Does that require, uh, is it too deep for people to... Sw- uh, you know, kind of, you know, swim down and tie bolts? Uh, yeah, the water depth that we're looking at is from, I think it starts from 25 meters to 60 meters water uh, depth. Uh-huh. Uh, so quite quite deep, but also um, underwater, you don't really bolt much. Okay. Uh, bolts tend to come uh, come apart pretty easily. Yeah. So uh, th- one of the advantages of, the fun- of this monopile is that, again, it's, it's a big stick that you put in the seabed and then there's nothing moving, there's nothing that requires maintenance. It's just... It just stays there, and that simplifies a lot. It's also from a, a safety perspective. There's there's been a gradual moving away in the industry from having any sort of underwater welding, underwater bolting. They're very dangerous activities. Yes. So if we can design it in a way that it doesn't require that, it's it's a, a game. so the stick goes into the uh, sea floor, and yeah. then the tower just sl- slides over the stick like a um, sleeve. Uh, almost there is a there is an extra component called the transition piece, which is the sleeve, as you as you put it very very well. So uh, and that provides that is the let's say the steel cylinder that holds all the ladders and the external platforms that are required to actually access the turbine. On top of that is then uh, the tower and uh, and the rotor and the blades. Right. Yep. Great. So nobody needs to swim down. You don't need submersibles to uh, inspect or there, there would be normally during installation that there are. ROVs or remote remote underwater operated vehicles, I think. Sounds about right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so just to sort of, and that's just a tiny robot with a camera yeah. that, that looks at what's going on. But other than that, no, it's, uh, again, a very safety conscious industry that tries to do as much as possible in a, let's say, automated way. Yes. And yeah. um, and the point is you've done this lots. Well, at least um, CIP has done this lots. So yeah. it's not like it's a new technology that's going to be trialed here. Correct. No, we, we will be using mostly established technologies. And uh, there's it's, it's an industry that is let's say, relatively new, say 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. So there's still a lot of innovation that happens and it's, it's very exciting to see it happen project after project. Mm. So there's always something that gets done slightly differently and and often, again, it's, it's there's some bright minds behind it. So yeah. it often works out well. Yeah. Um, 
I remember, uh, and many of us will remember when uh, it would would be about five or six years ago that the government announced an end, a planned end for oil and gas exploration in Taranaki. And it it wasn't a popular move in Taranaki. To what extent do does this project go to start to address the concerns about employment, uh, about wealth, about having a life uh, mm. in Taranaki for the people that grow up there? Yep, it's a very good point, and it's one that we hear a lot now that we are um, you know, engaging in Taranaki. We're often there. We talk a lot to people, and uh, you're right. There was quite a sense of uh, for for a few professionals. There was quite a sense of what will we do now? Yes. Um, Again, we benefit from the European experience and the UK experience. There's been a similar move there to uh, not necessarily with a ban, but realizing that offshore oil and gas was not going to be there forever. It was not going to be the future. Uh, offshore wind, as I was mentioning earlier, does use a lot of those skills that are um, that have been traditionally oil and gas. Yeah. So all the, for example, the health and safety training that is required uh, to go offshore on, on the current oil and gas platforms, uh, all that training translates very well to offshore wind because you're still having to get on a helicopter. You're still having to be winched onto a, a, yeah. a platform offshore. Yeah. So people who have all that exper- expertise are almost automatically ready to switch on, uh, onto this this new technology. Mm. So, uh, yeah, we've seen over and over again that there's a lot of overlap. That's why one of the first uh, studies we did, uh, we commissioned last year, we had concept consulting, uh, consulting firm in, in Wellington help us with that. Um, it's a so-called industry capability mapping study, not a bit, a bit of a mouthful. But, so sexy. Uh, exactly. So the idea was to do two things. One was bringing... Um, sort of laying out what types of jobs offshore wind brings, uh, what types of expertise are required at the various stages. So when planning a wind farm, when building the wind farm, when operating the wind farm, and merging that with what energy skills are existing in Taranaki at the moment, and then seeing what the overlap was. We're about to release that report, um, I think in October is when it's supposed to come out. And it has shown, as we knew, that there is a lot of overlap. So again, a lot of current jobs in Taranaki are almost immediately transferable that's, to offshore That's great wind. to hear. And the volume of work, so the skills are kind of similar, but also as many jobs? Um, it, that will depend on how many offshore wind farms get built. But uh, <laughs> just for, for our the numbers that we are looking at is uh, for operations and maintenance, we're looking at around 150 jobs mm-hmm. for, for the operate, and that's during the lifetime of the asset, so 30 years. And these are good jobs, like you know, well-paid, sort of uh, normally quite flash environments. So it's it's that kind of um, yeah, quite quite good job to have in in a region. And uh, you come home at the end of the day. You don't have to go and spend two weeks on an, uh, on a rig. If, if we manage to have operations and maintenance in Patia, that would probably be the way it goes. Yes. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, I should say there's also uh, a lot of jobs involved in the construction phase. We didn't necessarily focus on that too much because for two reasons. One, as I was mentioning, a lot of that expertise comes from overseas. Sure. Yeah, it yeah. would be tricky. We will do as much as we can to keep to have some local component, but Sometimes the contractors are, are just from overseas and, and they will have their own people. Uh, but also the fact that construction will last two or three years. So there's a big spike in, let's say, uh, 
workforce in those two or three years, but it it risks being a bit of a boom and bust thing if you're only focusing on that. Sure, right? yeah. So we were more interested in that in that longer term, uh, more yeah. sort of steady, high quality jobs. There was an excellent quote from a spokesperson for Farihoka Wano, mm. who was the local iwi, one of the local iwi, and he said, um, you know, last time this happened, we were locked out of the industry, but yep. um, how are you working with iwi and do you have thoughts about how they could be incorporated into top? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So with uh, iwi, they've, uh, we've always seen them as, you know, key piece, uh, obviously, of, of the puzzle. And from our discussions, we started, let's say, a year and a half ago talking to uh, mainly the iwi of South Taranaki, the four iwi of South Taranaki. And at the beginning, I would say the conversation was more about Please tell us what this was, what this technology is, because again, it was a yeah. pretty new thing, and yeah. a lot of people still don't know. I'm very glad to see that in a year and a half, I would say the conversation has moved to, okay, we get we get what that is. Uh, can we now talk about how this enables EWI in a way that oil and gas hasn't? Mm. So there's a lot more talk about how can EWI be involved in the EWI and Hapu, and you know, all the way down to individuals, because that's that's what it's all about. How can they participate in this? And and the two main sort of messages we're hearing are one uh, interest in co-designing a lot of the activities. So you know having a handle on what type of environmental studies will we be doing and how should we be looking at how should we look at the seabed and all that. Hmm. So being allowed to co-design all that with us. The other aspect is more a sort of commercial partnership because they do realize that these are. Projects that if they go well, they you know very good returns. So yeah. th- there's definitely an interest there in, in trying to be part of this more than what has been just a box ticking exercise. Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, that's that's awesome to hear. Um, it's very curious hearing an Italian talking about uh, a New Zealand project working for a Danish company. So could you explain your journey to? To arrive in, um, I think you're living in Wellington. I live in Wellington, yes. Yeah, it's a long winded journey. But um, so, yeah, I am Italian. Uh, I am not Danish. A lot of people think I'm Danish, but no. You could pass as a Dane. I mean, you're, you know, blondish. Yeah, true, true. But no, uh, Italian, half British. So that's where maybe my non uh, Italianness comes from. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I was uh, born and raised in Italy in a tiny town in the north. And I graduated there in civil engineering, uh, worked for a couple of years in Italy, and then was looking for bigger challenges. So moved to London. And I moved to London with the idea of doing two things. I wanted to work as a structural engineer to felt like I would have been using more of my engineering skills that way. And I wanted to work in renewable energy. Mm. And I just happened to find an ad that we're looking for looking for offshore wind engineers. <laughs> I barely knew what offshore wind was, but did a bit of Wikipedia searching was ah, that looks cool. And I ended up working for the company that is pretty much the lead designers of foundations for offshore wind in, in the world. So I, I learned quite a lot there, got really passionate. I realized that this is the type of, I guess, crossing of large industrial project and climate change fight, the, the, the kind of thing that I was very passionate about. Um, and so I ended up working in London for five years. When I moved here uh, seven years ago, moved to Aotearoa, I, I kind of had to park a little bit my my offshore wind career because seven years ago there was no no talk about it here. But then I was lucky enough that the, the resource got uh, sort of uh, identified, mostly yeah. by Ian Mason, a uh, professor at Canterbury, so who pointed out, look, there is a perfectly good r- wind resource and yes. this shallow water that we are talking about. Um, and so uh, with, with Ian Mason, we ended up uh, setting up the offshore wind working group, which was a bit of a, 
let's say, club for the few people who knew anything about <laughs> offshore wind <laughs> yeah. to discuss it amongst uh, each other. Uh, but it actually came at a really good time when, when people started being interested. And, uh, and it's quite a leap to go from that small club of enthusiasts to two of the biggest entities. Well, it's certainly, you know, uh, uh, the, um, the, the super fund has, has, has billions of dollars at stake. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming that um, CIP is a large entity also with... So how did you go about convincing those two biggies to join your tiny little club? Well, it went the other way around, actually. So uh, CIP um, are on this side of the world because we are uh, developing the Star of the South offshore wind farm in Australia. So mm-hmm. that's off the coast of Gippsland. When you say we, you're CIP. CIP, yes. yes. Uh, so um, Star of the South is is the, the first um, sort of more advanced project uh, down there. It's the first project that started bringing the conversation of offshore wind to this side of the world. And uh, as the team in Melbourne got um, sort of established and, and started growing to focus on that project, they started looking around the, the APAC region and they immediately noticed, you know, that paper from Ian Mason and the <laughs> fact that there was obviously a very good resource in, in South Taranaki. Yeah. And so they started some investigations. I, at the time, was the chair of the Offshore Wind Working Group. And uh, so they CIP were looking for someone in the country to kind of lead the project, and I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time. That's a dream scenario. What's yeah. your title in this entity? It's the very long-winded Senior Business Development Manager. And th- does that mean you're effectively the CEO? Uh, no, I'm not the CEO. There's a, there, I, The CEO is in Australia. He's the CEO of the project. Uh-huh. Um, I guess I'm the, the lead person on the ground. We'll call you the country manager. That sounds good. <laughs> um, it. It does sound like a dream scenario. You know, you've got great funders, you've got expertise, you've got all what on paper looks like all the elements. If I asked you to say out of 10, 10 being an absolute dead cert and zero being no, where does where do you think the likelihood of this project sits? Mm, I get asked about likelihood a lot and it's, it's <laughs> difficult to express at this stage. Um I'll say a seven, and I will say a seven mostly because I like to go back to the basics and look at the resources. There's an amazing wind potential. The conditions for installing this type of power plant are great. The country does need more renewable electricity. Just starting from there, I would say it would be almost a pity if we didn't use (laughs) the opportunity, if you know what I mean. But then it does go into a lot of details, and that's why we we call it feasibility, because there are a lot of things that have to converge to make this type of project um, happen. And what's the time frame? We're looking at um, basically making a sort of final investment decision, which is the kind of big decision that happens at the end of the whole feasibility stage towards the end of the decade, and then looking at constructing in, say, 2020, uh, sorry, 2032, 33. So that could be when the power plant is fully operational. Um, Those dates can vary based on mostly the regulatory environment currently being set up by government. That is a big indication of how fast the investment can go, let's say. Okay, so some of those rules need to change for it to work for you? Some need to be established, let's say. There's no regulatory environment um, at the moment. That is what uh, MB have been working on. Right. So that will Because it's the first time we've ever built such a thing. Yep, yeah. So, and and everybody realised straight away that it... It's such a complex project that it does require its own mm. rules of the game because it does tap into a lot of different aspects of, of the electricity market, of society, of um, technical aspects as well. So, 
this must be like a dream assignment for you. It's just like the coming together of all the things. Absolutely. I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's really good. And I've always been more of the holistic person. Um, I, I liked my engineering days, but I must say that, that seeing the whole project sort of slowly unfold and having to tap into all those various areas, uh, I'm very grateful that I landed where I did. Well, we're very grateful to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us, uh, Giacomo Calafi. 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 Indeed. I'll get it right, <laughs> <Yes>. eventually. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, Vincent. Thank you. This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. 